Well, you're probably surprised to see me up here this morning. I'm kind of surprised myself, actually. <laughs> I wasn't sure when, if ever, I was going to be able to, to give these lessons. I think it's going to take two Sundays. Well, I know it's going to take two Sundays. But uh, I'm going to be presenting the Bible's teaching on earthly treasure. And I think a little bit of background is in order. What happened was about two years ago, we had Financial Peace University is what they call it. It's a ministry of Dave Ramsey. Some of you probably listen to him on the radio. And it was very good instruction on finances. And uh, I guess the problem I had was that even though he's a Christian man, he didn't really present what the Bible teaches about finances. And I've kind of been a student of this topic all my adult life, and I kind of had read many books. Larry Burkett, Crown Financial Ministries, uh, had a lot of good materials. And I kind of set my course early in life with respect to this topic. And then my oldest son sent me a book. It's called The Treasure Principle, and it's written by Randy Alcorn. Has anybody ever read that very small, tiny book? Okay, and in reading that, I realized that maybe I didn't know that area as comprehensively as I should, and so what I decided to do was, from a bottoms-up approach, I tried to review what the scripture says about earthly treasure, and the Bible does not all... Just talk about spiritual treasure, Uh, even though this is the true treasure, and we'll be talking about that a little bit more. This is the true treasure that all believers should seek first, and we think of Matthew 6.33. But the, the Bible is actually filled with wisdom and principles and teaching on earthly treasure, wealth, riches, possessions, tangible assets, non-tangible assets, it's all covered. I'm just going to be using the word treasure to kind of cover all of that, those things. And what I ended up with after my bottoms-up approach was finished is that I had 78 pages of uh, verses and an interpretation of verses and analysis of verses I had, I had looked at actually about 1,250 verses, individual verses. Now, a lot, and these verses all had to do something with treasure, but a lot of them were redundant. Uh, a lot of them were not helpful. But what I did was I tried to distill everything down into four of the Bible's main teachings on treasure, and then I also put together a little discussion on grace giving, which is what I think that we in the New Testament are under. So God laid on my heart that I should share this with you, and so that's what I'm doing here. Um, Just uh, let's pray real quick, and then we'll get started. Lord, we ask that you'd be here at this time and give us all open minds and willing hearts. And we just pray that you would use 
this imperfect uh, speaker to present what you your word says, and we pray that your word uh, would not return void. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the target audience is born-again believers. Uh, unlike Dave Ramsey, his seminar is for you know, everybody. Uh, again, some really good financial management information. So it's the born-again believers that need to know these uh, teachings from the Bible and need to apply them to our lives. Uh, it's especially important for either new Christians, new born-again believers, or those who have, have not uh, grown up, so to speak, to know this. Uh, so why study the Bible, what the Bible teaches about treasure, uh, which is a topic that's often kind of neglected in the church today. I think it's because it's painful. Uh, let me uh, explain that a little bit. How a believer thinks about and how they, what they say and they do with respect to earthly treasure is actually a very good indicator of their heart condition whether that heart is like worldly, fleshly, carnal, or whether it's uh, spiritual and heavenly. Those are the two contrasts that are set up in the New Testament. Um, so this can be a spiritually convicting topic to discuss and can bring some discomfort in the pews. And I don't intend to do this. Uh, uh, we're not trying to ambush anybody and... Actually, this church is a, a good group of givers. So I, I just think that we need to consider a few things, especially if we've never gone through this topic in a systematic way. My goal would be for all of you to wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly embrace what the Bible teaches about earthly treasure. Um, learning and applying the Bible's teachings on earthly treasure can strengthen a believer's personal relationship with God. But I have to let you know that the converse is true also. How you deal with your earthly treasure can hinder your spirituality. Mm. I've tried, well, this is not just the result of some theoretical study into this topic of earthly treasure. Uh, from the Bible, although I, if anybody wants the more complete outline, I'll be happy to give that to you. It has a lot more verses in it that I want, I'm not going to be able to cover. But this is all from the Bible, and it's not just a theoretical thing with me, though. It's more personal, because I have tried to apply these, these Bible teachings to my life, at least the best as I, I knew them at the time, uh, albeit kind of imperfectly at times. You kind of waver, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But I've experienced what God can do if we will live by what he teaches in the Bible. And I can un unreservedly endorse uh, this teaching. Plus, obviously, it's from God's word. Bottom line is that there is a fundamental and unseverable connection between faith and finances. 
Okay, let's, let's go. Hopefully you have a handout. It has a front and a back. If you don't have a handout, maybe Brad can pass some more out. Yeah, probably only need one per household, but anyway, if you want, go ahead and take them. And these are the four most important biblical teachings on earthly treasure. As you can see, there's like one through four. But this is just a skeleton. It does give you the most important verses that I looked at. Again, I have many more verses in my full outline. But the first two teachings are associated with the born-again believer's heart condition. Um, heart condition is something that's internal. It's unseen by other people. The second two teachings are associated with how a believer should act with respect to earthly treasure in light of that heart condition. Um, heart, or what we do and say, is external, uh, but oftentimes what, how we treat our finances is somewhat hidden or concealed to others because finances are considered a personal thing. You don't go around asking people how much they make and how much they're giving to the church. I guess, you know, your tax preparer knows for sure. So. so let's look at the first teaching and look at the handout, and you'll see that the first teaching is one perspective that the believer requires. That perspective is that we don't own anything. God owns everything. We manage God's property and our God-given resources for God. The perspective just means a way to think about things. And it's, a, it's something that is learned by the believer, and it's stored in their mind. It must be, again, taught to new believers. And obviously, a non-believer doesn't have this perspective at all. And there's, there's a footnote at the bottom of the handout on the first page, I think, and that kind of gives a little explanation about how man is structured and what I mean when I say heart. And so I'm not going to take time to read through that, but that's very important for your understanding. And I say it's required because as a believer, you must have this perspective because it runs counter to our sinful flesh, that's proud, self-centered, selfish. And it must be carefully maintained. Okay, So let's start out. God owns everything and everyone because he created it all. You can think of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Genesis 3.20, or excuse me, 3.2 tells us that God controls the conception of women. So there's nobody that's born into this world, and God says, oh, that's a surprise. I didn't realize they were coming. No, they created every sing or God created every, every single one of you. And the born-again believer is twice owned by God. You can take a look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, um, a very familiar verse. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought 
with a price. And that price was the shed blood of God's own son, Jesus Christ. And that was a pretty high cost. Um, But this purchase that happens, it's for all of us. It's, it includes our person and everything that we uh, think of as our own, like earthly treasure. So according to God's word, all treasure on earth actually is owned by God. Uh, Psalms 104:24 says, O Lord, how manifold are thy works, in wisdom hast thou made them all, the earth is full of thy riches." And God entrusts his treasure to believers. Uh, this is a, a function of God's sovereign will. And that's something that we cannot know. First Chronicles 29.12 says this, Both riches and honor come from thee, meaning God, and thou reignest over all. I call your attention to one verse that expressly states that our treasure is from God. And this is from Deuteronomy 8, and it's 17 and 18. I'm going to only read the important parts. It says, 17, And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hands hath gotten me this wealth. Verse 18, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. He, that's God, giveth thee the power to get wealth. So all our God-given resources that we just kind of take for granted, uh, these are the things that we use to acquire treasure, uh, such as our knowledge, uh, our wisdom, our talents, our abilities, our time, our time, Energy, good health. These are all God-given resources that we often take for granted. So if we are doubly owned by God by way of creation and purchase, uh, then the believer merely manages their life for God. And in in the Bible, we call this stewardship. Stewardship of life, and this is sometimes a neglected area of Bible teaching also. Now, we're going to take a really quick look at two parables of Christ, and they relate to stewardship of life. And I've given you the references there. They are quite familiar parables. One is the parable of the talents, and one is the parable in Luke of the pounds. In both cases, these are money. It's ancient way to talk about money. Uh, Both parables state that they're about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which during this dispensation is a spiritual kingdom that resides in the heart of the believers. And both of the uh, parables are in the the master-servant type of context. Um, And the New Testament does teach clearly that we are adopted sons and daughters. We're part of God's family. That's a, a nice thing to know. It really encourages us. But using the master-servant context is more appropriate when discussing stewardship of God's property. 
And the Bible does clearly teach that um, Jesus is our master and our Lord and is to be reigning from the throne of our hearts. So the basic story is this. A master, a rich master goes away, and then he leaves money with a bunch of servants, and he expects them he tells them to go out and invest, get, make, some, make some money, get some return. And then when he returns, he demands an accounting. Um, I like Luke's account. It's in 1913. It, it mentions the phrase, occupy till I come. And when I looked at the underlying Greek word that's translated there, it refers to taking care of business. Investing, being a good steward until I return. Um, both parab- in both parables, the master either rewards or punishes the servants based upon how they have managed his, managed his property. And the bottom line is that both parables relate to stewardship of life, and that includes the believer's treasure. If God doubly owns us and all our treasure, quote-unquote, then the only question becomes, how should we manage God's treasure? Um, and the two parables seem to highlight this idea of faithfulness. You'll see in the outline, the, one in, the parable in Matthew about the talents highlights being a good and faithful servant. That's how the master commended two of the servants. Good is kind of an interesting word. It it really just means it's agathos, and it means to uh, fulfill the duty or service that has been demanded. And it's somewhat like the phrase, occupy till I come. It seems clear, although it's not stated, that this master, before he took off, he clearly instructed these servants what to do with his money. He wanted to have, uh, he wanted to have more money when he came back. Uh, so faithfulness, though, is mentioned in both the Matthew and Luke account. Um, notice that it's, the reward is not dependent upon how much of a return you get. It's just being faithful. And then, of course, uh, one of the servants is called wicked and slothful in Matthew in verse 26, and he's punished. He's sent into outer darkness. 1 Corinthians 4.12 also mentions, or excuse me, 4.1 and 2 mentioned that, um, mentioned this idea of stewardship, and it says, moreover, it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. So at a minimum, being faithful has to include knowing what the Bible teaches about your earthly treasure and then trying to follow it. Um, And there's a promise of abundant reward here in both of these parables as well. Uh, We're just, we, we need to be reminded, it's said quite often, but we as stewards of God's property will appear before the Bema or the judgment seat of Christ and we will receive rewards based upon uh, the nature of our works.
There's another parable I'd like to go to, and this is a more difficult parable. It's called the parable of the unjust steward, and it's found in Luke 16, 1 through 14. Again, we're not going to read the whole thing. We, don't, we just don't have time. But this is a very difficult parable to understand, I think. And clearly it's not teaching us to be unjust in our dealings, in our monetary dealings with other people. And it's, uh, you know, it's definitely not talking about being unjust with respect to our use of God's treasure. But there's a few things here that we should look at a little bit closely. If you want to turn to Luke 16, that would be good. I'm going to be taking apart a few verses here. So the first verse I want to look at is Luke 16.8. This is what it says. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I think what this is saying is that unbelievers are wiser with ungodly mammon than believers are with God's treasure. And it's because the believers are not following what the Bible teaches about earthly treasure. And if you take a look at uh, verse 10, 1610, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in the much. This one's a little bit harder to interpret. I think what he's saying is here is, why should God entrust more of his treasure with you if you've not been a faithful steward of what God has given you already? Um, and then if you take a look at Verse 11 that follows, If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you, to your trust, the true riches? That's a question. I think that this verse is teaching that um, if we're not wise and faithful stewards of the earthly treasure that really belongs to God, uh, God is is not going to be free with giving us spiritual treasure that is really the true treasure. The Bible teaches that countless times. Um, the clear implication is that if we do not follow the Bible's teaching on earthly treasure, our spiritual growth, our spiritual development is going to be hindered. Okay. So Luke 16, 12, I'll read that one as well. And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? And I think that this verse is teaching that uh, if we're not a faithful steward of God's treasure here on earth, uh, why should he give us eternal rewards, true treasure that will last with us for all eternity in heaven. Um, I'm going to skip 13. That, I think, is going to be mentioned next week, but 1614 is interesting because apparently the Pharisees were sitting around and listening to this teaching, 
about the unjust steward. And, well, I'll just read it. The Pharisees who were guilty of covetousness heard all these things and derided Jesus' teaching. So I think the bottom line from this parable is that God tests us with earthly treasure before giving us access to the fullness of his true treasure. And the root cause that determines whether or not uh, we, as a believer, uh, are wise and faithful is the condition of our hearts. And whether it's dominated by covetousness on the one hand or contentment on the other. So I'm going to wrap up this first point. Boy, concluding thoughts. This perspective that God owns everything, we just manage his property for him, is absolutely fundamental to our personal relationship with God. That's why I said it's required. Everything else that the Bible teaches about treasure will make no sense unless you wholeheartedly accept this perspective and consistently cultivate it and until you get to the point where it's, it's irreversibly programmed into your mind. And I just remind you all that the mind is the very first personal computer that you were ever given. It's uh, God's PC. It's the mind that is used to, to gather in information, store it, and think about it. And more importantly, we saw from the parable of the unjust, unjust steward, uh, the believer who lacks this perspective will never properly develop spiritually. So this perspective relates to something that happened to you at the point you became born again. And if we remember uh, Romans 10, 9, and 10, which is often used when somebody is being, uh, when the gospel is being shared with somebody, uh, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. The Lord Jesus probably would have been better translated to say that if you confess that Jesus is Lord. And to be able to confess something with your mouth, that means there's got to have been something in your heart that changed. And to be able to confess that Jesus is now the Lord of your life essentially means you've abdicated the throne of your life. Okay. So this is very important. And as we learned before, we were purchased All of us have been purchased at the point of being born again. God owns everything, including the believer's treasure. Unless the believer has learned and carefully maintains this perspective, then they will have a spiritually debilitating heart condition. And that's what I want to talk about next. So the second teaching is one precept that the believer must conscientiously consider. And conscientiously just means that you think about it in a thorough and a responsible way and in a way that's motivated by your sense of of moral right and wrong. And I I probably don't need to remind you, but uh, the Bible gives us God's moral will. 
Everything we need to know about what's right and wrong is right in the Bible. And that's what we're looking at right now. So I want you to conscientiously consider this in light of the Bible. And the teaching is this. The believer's heart will always become attached or yoked to the place where the believer decides or chooses to invest or store up their treasure. What a believer says and does as the stewardship of God's treasure is a reliable indicator of their heart condition. And the reason why I use the term yoked, it's a good biblical term, but the New Testament you know, clearly states what we are to be yoked, or who we are to be yoked to and who we are not to be yoked to, right? Matthew 6.21 talks about, or excuse me, Matthew 11.28 talks about being yoked to Jesus himself. Um, 2 Corinthians 6.14 talks about not being un, unequally yoked with unbelief, unbelievers, uh, unrighteousness, and darkness. And a yoke, if you don't know, is that thing that kind of ties a, a team of cattle together. And if you are not, well, you can either move as a team and get some work done, or you can move in different directions, and you're not going to get anything done. The key verse that is the basis for this precept is Matthew 6.21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Or where your heart is, there will your treasure be. And there's an identical verse in Luke 12, 34. Um, so I think it's an important enough passage, pretty short, but it's important enough where God put it in, his, in the Gospels twice. Where a believer decides or chooses to invest and store up God's treasure depends primarily on where they think their home is. Um, you probably heard the phrase, home is where the heart is. Uh, it's apparently from some poem. And I looked at it, and there's a lot of stuff on the Internet about how you interpret that. But uh, a home is a place of safety, comfort, acceptance, relationship, genuine love. It's the place you long to be. God's word says that it is also where our treasure is. And consequently, the believer's real home should set the believer's priorities for making choices and decisions with regard to treasure. Heaven, not earth, is the believer's real home. I use the term domicile there. If you were in the military, everybody knows about domicile. That's a the place you intend to reside. Uh, and the kingdom of heaven is the believer's country of citizenship. Uh, I'll just mention this. Paul, in his writings in Philippians, Philippians 1.27 and Philippians 3.20, they both mention uh, about the believer's citizenship. And clearly it's, it's not in this world. And then John 14.3 talks about, and if I go to prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Well, it seems to me that the pervasive problem is that many believers do not consistently think of heaven as their real home, or at least they don't live as if heaven is their real home. And therefore, uh, their hearts, and consequently where they choose and decide to invest and store up treasure, uh, is, is firmly and increasingly becoming yoked to this world. Such a believer's heart condition is either remaining, and if they're a non-believer, or if they're a new believer, they, they came to this, and unless they're taught about this precept, you know, they are going to just remain kind of at a very low level with respect to this the understanding of this teaching about treasure. Or believers can become more fleshly and carnal over time. And it's because what they say and do with respect to earthly treasure shows that they consider earth, earth, earthly treasure their true treasure. So uh, a born-again believer needs to continuously kind of maintain this perspective that heaven is their real home. However, this is not so easy. Um, so when we think about heaven, it's a place that we've never been to and we only have a, a glimpse of what it's going to be like in Revelation. And that's primarily the eternal state it is talked about in chapters 21 and 22. Uh, it's also kind of like the sweet by and by, somewhere out there in the future, and we sing about it in church, but that's about it. But what, what about the world? Well, there's a poem the World is Too Much With Us by William Woodsworth. He's an old guy. Lived, I guess he died in 1850, so this is really a long time ago. But I found a couple lines that I think are interesting. The world is too much with us, late and soon, getting and spending. We lay waste our powers. So for right now, believers are firmly planted and surrounded by the world. And all that is in this world, what? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So that is problematic. And, and what I just quoted is from 1 John 2.16. The believer has to remain extremely vigilant because loss of control over the heart with respect to earthly treasure is gradual, it's subtle, and it's insidious. There we go. I knew I could say it. So remember the parable of the sower and the four soils, which represent different types of hearts. In Matthew 13, 22, uh, I'm going to just read this. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. Mark 4, 18 and 19. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, verse 19, and the cares of this world and deceitfulness of riches, exact same phrase, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. 
and then Luke 8.14. And that which fell among the thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit, fruit to perfection. Proverbs 4.23 tells us to, to keep or guard our hearts with all diligence, for out of them flows, out of it are the issues of life. Uh, I use the term control. We need to control our hearts. Loss of control over the hearts will eventually destroy a believer's godly priorities. Uh, Matthew 6.33 that I mentioned earlier on, it's, um, we used to sing the chorus a lot. I don't hear it too much, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Uh, this type of priority scheme should govern all our decisions and choices with respect to earthly treasure. Concluding thoughts. Never forget that the born-again believer is engaged in a very high-stakes spiritual warfare. The believer is in a lifelong war over the control of their heart. And this war is with uh, the world around us, which I just mentioned. Uh, It's with our sinful nature, the flesh that's within us, and it's with Satan and and his demons that are trying to go around and destroy uh, believers by making them uh, defeated and unfruitful. Winning this war and the daily battle requires a believer to vigilantly guard, keep, control their hearts by maintaining a heavenly perspective and godly priorities. This precept that I just went through is actually a sober warning from Jesus that each believer must conscientiously consider. I can just explain what the scriptures say. It's up to you personally what you do with it in your heart. And then the third and final teaching for this morning, I can't see the clock because I have my reading glasses on, but I think I'm doing okay, actually, which is surprising. The third teaching is one principle that the believer should heed and obey. And it's stated as this, the believer cannot take earthly treasure with them beyond death and into the grave, but the believer can send treasure on ahead into heaven. Oh, 1 Timothy 6-7 says, for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. That's just obvious. And the key verses that are the basis for this principle are Matthew 6, 19, and 20. Once again, we're taking it from the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount, and it's Jesus himself that is teaching this. And 619 says, Lay not up for yourselves treasure upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Verse 20, But, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. So, lay not up treasures on earth, lay up treasures in heaven. So, it must be possible. 
the believer should live for the line. Technically, it's a ray uh, and not the dot. And I actually provided a little figure at the bottom of, <laughs> of uh, your handout because I, it's hard to explain exactly what, I, what I'm trying to depict here. But a ray is just something that starts at a finite point and goes on forever into infinity. Uh, a dot is just a very small little point on the page. And this, this raises the issue of whether the believer will live with a short-term perspective or a long-term perspective. And almost every financial advisor that I ever ran into will always tell you to invest for the long term. You speculate if you want to become a day trader. Uh, that's not investing. Um, the New Testament actually says something about those who have a short-term perspective. In fact, all non-believers have actually chosen to have a very short-term perspective on things. Um, so let's take a quick look at Luke 12, 16-21. Yet another parable of Christ. And this is a pretty well-known parable. What happens is this rich farmer, he has this bumper crop, and he has all this wealth. He says he's going to bear, uh, tear down his barns and build bigger ones so they can store all this, this wealth that he has grown on his land. And he thinks to himself, I have so much money I'm just going to sit back, relax, and I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. But take a look at verse 20. But God said unto him, thou fool. And by the way, we're not supposed to call other people fools, but God uses that term, and it's clearly appropriate. Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee, in other words, he's going to die, then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? Verse 21, so or likewise is he that layeth up treasure for himself on earth and is not rich toward God with the true riches that we'll talk about here shortly. This reminded me a lot of Jim Elliott's uh, real famous statement, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Did you hear that? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And, and this is not just a statement of some sort of a spiritual giant, although I think Jimmy Elliott was a, a spiritual giant. He was the one that was killed down in Ecuador by the Alka Indians. Uh, there was a movie made about it, I think Tip of the Spear or something like that. But he gave his life, his young life, uh, for the spread of the gospel. And I think this is, a, this is really lucid, clear thinking, actually, because the believer who, who is able to say this and able to adopt this principle is actually focusing on true treasure that will be waiting for him in his real home. Uh, 
makes pretty good sense to me. So why don't more believers consistently live this way? Well, I think it's because most believers have not wholeheartedly adopted the first The first perspective and the second precept that we've just discussed. Um, Now, I'm going to quickly talk about the two fatal flaws of earthly treasure. And this is implied from the the text that we read, Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Uh, And it is just common sense. Qualitatively, Earthly treasures suffer from destructibility. Uh, Earthly treasures may be stolen, they can be destroyed, they can deteriorate and decay, they can be corrupted, they can lose their value because they're just physical and material in nature. Matthew 6.19 talks about, Lay not up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But compare this with true treasure that is indestructible. And that's kind of what Matthew 6.20 talks about. And then quantitatively, earthly treasure lacks durability. It's temporary. Not going to last. Not only will you leave everything that you've accumulated here when you die, but we know from the New Testament that even if you leave something as a legacy to your family, everything in this world is going to be destroyed by fire one day. Your, your legacy is not going to last very long. First, or Second Peter 3.10-12 talks about this. And God's going to make everything new, new heavens and new earth, and compare this with true treasure that will retain its value for all eternity, Matthew 6.20. So, how do you send treasure on ahead to heaven? How do you make a deposit in the first national bank of heaven? Um, Well, according to God's word, there are three things that are eternal, and only three things. Men's souls... And I can give you some sites to that. I, I will, rather than rattle them off, if somebody wants to see the citations, the references, I'd be glad to share it with them. Uh, rewards given at the Bema, or the judgment seat of Christ, will be eternal rewards that are based upon the quality of our works here on earth. And then finally, God's word. God's word is settled in the heavens. Um, the believer should obey this principle, the principle taught in Matthew 6, 19-20, and invest their lives to include their treasure into the first two things, men's souls and works that will earn or reap eternal rewards. And the third thing that's eternal, God's word, provides the instruction, provides the material for you to make those type of investments. And we're not always talking about just money. We're not talking about 
just a believer investing their treasure, but they may be investing other God-given resources. I mentioned these earlier, knowledge, wisdom, abilities, talents, or time, energy, good health. These are all actually resources given to us by God. Um, Indirectly, all of these resources have an equivalency to treasure. You probably heard the term time is money, and it really is. We only have so much time given to us, and we have a choice about how we use it. A believer will either use these God-given resources to acquire earthly treasure pursue pleasures, enjoy pastimes, whatever they do, or invest in true treasure. The believer cannot do both. It's a zero-sum game. This is why maintaining godly priorities in our heart is so important. And we talked about that with respect to the second precept. Um, And there's got to be a balance. I'm not advocating that everybody go out and become ministers of the gospel or give all the money to the church and go to some foreign field. There is a balance, but I think the balance is being struck by many believers today in the wrong place. So how should the believer invest God's treasure? Well, hopefully in the spiritual and eternal work of Christ's church through giving of tithes and offerings and alms. And I'll talk about the three different categories of giving next week, Lord willing. A believer can invest, well, I guess the alternative to giving your treasure to Christ's church would be maybe wasting it on some toys that are destructible or some pleasures or some pastimes that are temporary These things cannot truly satisfy, and we're not going to be able to take. I don't even remember, uh, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to remember my vacation to Hawaii after I die. I probably won't even care about it. So that was a good time. I enjoyed that a lot. But, you know. Or another thing that believers can do is hoard God's treasure. We shouldn't be doing that either. You have to be wise and plan for orderly retirement, um, but you know we don't just amass huge amounts of, of funds uh, so that we can give it to our kids. That, that probably doesn't even help them that much. So here are some other thoughts. A believer can invest in their own soul, in their own heart, by transforming it into a storehouse of spiritual treasure, by practicing the spiritual disciplines, by manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, by consistently submitting to the Lordship of Christ, by cooperating in the process of practical sanctification. That's just a long theological term that talks about how we, we set We separate parts of our heart from the world, and we set them apart for God, for for Christ. Uh, It's completely related to this idea of lordship, because at the point of salvation, maybe positionally you are sanctified, 
you, are, you have the righteousness of Christ. It doesn't even get any better than that. But pragmatically, practically, sanctification is a lifelong process that involves separating from the world and setting apart areas of your life to the Lordship of Christ. That's what it's all about. Or we can identify and develop our spiritual gifts. That's really important, too. It's pretty clear from the Bible every born-again believer has at least one spiritual gift, so we need to identify and develop them and use them. The believer can also invest in the, the souls of the hearts of others by becoming a soul winner and a disciple maker. Um, maybe you'll use your spiritual gifts to edify and, and bless other believers. Uh, maybe you can use some of your treasure to grant scholarships so that people can go to things like the women's retreat or the two-minute warning or master's men or whatever else. The uh, Berean conference was actually quite enjoyable. I like that. And that was Dan's idea, by the way, to invite Ryan. I'm sure glad he, he came with us. Proverbs 1130b says that he that winneth souls is wise. And we know also that the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, is all about going around and making disciples. And I may have more to say about that at a different time, but we can invest our lives also in good works that primarily benefit others. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus and the good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This is after we get saved because everybody knows Ephesians 2.8 and 9, but they forget Ephesians 2.10. A believer's life should be all about humble servanthood, others, just like the life of their Lord. And you take a look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Well, these good works will lead to eternal rewards at the judgment seat of Christ if the works are done with the right heart motive and attitude. And then finally, God's word is eternal. Well, the Bible is the believer's instruction book for how we live in this world. It is the, our sole authority for all faith and practice. And studying and applying and obeying God's word uh, is required for investing in your own soul. But also, if you're going to become a soul winner and a disciple maker, you're going to have to spend some time in God's word as well to be able to invest in the souls of others. Concluding thoughts. Our God is an infinitely good God. And why? Because God's word instructs all his disciples to use his treasure, God's treasure, for free in order to store up treasure for themselves in heaven. And that's the true treasure that's indestructible and durable. So from an investor's point of view, this is absolutely a dream come true because it employs what is termed maximum leverage. Actually, it's infinite leverage. We're using God's treasure 
somebody else's money at 0% interest to acquire true treasures in heaven for ourselves. So from a disciple's point of view, I think this should bring us great joy. So next week, uh, Lord willing again, I want to take up the fourth teaching from the Bible. It's based on Malachi 3.10. And this is probably the most often misinterpreted and misapplied verse in Scripture by both believers and what I would call quasi-non-believers, those that preach the gospel of health and wealth. Um, And then I'm also going to talk a little bit about how uh, giving should occur in this dispensation.